We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. And the newsroom, Dida Weeks and Dave Woodard. Welcome to the first full day of fall of 2022. And it feels like it, but we're Canadian, so we wear shorts all year round. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. The gang's all here a Friday and uh, the first one of the fall of 2022. And uh, not too bad at all uh, if you're in this part of the country. If you are on the East Coast and the Maritimes, uh, it's a completely different story. Uh, welcome to Hamilton today. Uh, beautiful day out there, and uh, unfortunately, it's not going to be like that completely across the country as we're expecting some very severe weather coming into uh, the Maritimes and such. But uh, here today, beautiful, and hopefully a good weekend, too. Uh, you can feel that crispness in the air. It's fall. It's great for football, and it's great for fall fairs, including the Ancaster Fair, which is on this weekend. Paul Gibbons is with us presently. President Ancaster Agricultural Society, and here now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. Yeah, we're doing well. So how is it this year, Paul, compared to the last couple of years, uh, and, and what's the adjustment like getting back into it? Well, as you're well aware, the last couple of years, it was we had nothing, and we're very excited to have our 172nd fair. And uh, you think about that number, that's a big number. That goes back before Confederation, so we have quite a legacy here. So what, uh, you know, obviously it's been a couple of years because of the pandemic and, you know, affecting all kinds of fairs and events like this. Was it much of a challenge to get this up and running again? You know, it really wasn't much of a challenge. we got a great team here, and everybody knows what they're doing, and it came together quite smoothly. And as far as learning anything through the course of the pandemic or changes to the fair, uh, is it different this year? Actually, no, it's not different. Things are back to normal. And uh, we've got a great offering this year. There's something for everyone. And the entertainment changes every day. I urge everyone to come out. The weather's going to be decent. It's beautiful here today. So to someone who's never been to the Ancaster Fair, describe it. What's it like? What have you got going on? Oh, we've got everything. We have huge entertainment. We have Tebe here tonight on the main stage. He's a country music performer. He's had seven top ten hits in country Canada. He's a he's a spectacular songwriter and singer. Um, tomorrow night, we have Matt Mays. Matt Mays is a hometown boy he's born in hamilton he's raised in nova scotia he's an indie rock performer he's a great entertainer on top of that we have cattle shows we have the poultry show we've got the horse shows we have something for the dog lovers it's called wolf jacks we have the midway we have the fair food of course we have old mcdonald's and uh, school fair and uh, the education building for the young people um, you know, the list goes on and on. So what are wolf jacks? Tell us about the dog thing. It's a dog show. And uh, quite frankly, I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, but I guess it's very entertaining. 
So do you get a feeling that you're going to have big crowds this year just simply because it's been so long since you've got to do this in, in a full-fledged uh, way that you are now? Yes, we have every hope that we're going to have big crowds. We've got a, quite a nice crowd coming today, and the, the rush is starting. I'm actually out by the parking lot, and I see the cars starting to line up there. And Between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock, there's going to be a big push for us. So you opened yesterday afternoon and much traffic last night. Um, we, oh, yeah. We also have the uh, demolition derby, and that's a big draw. And that was a big draw last night. Unfortunately, yesterday was not the best of days. It was quite windy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it was, for a Thursday, it was quite typical for us. And Dem- De- demolition derby always, uh, obviously always brings them in. So a good turnout for that last night. Yeah, and the demolition derby goes on every night. Perfect. So there you go. So uh, any advice for people that are coming in as far as parking or what they should bring or what they need with the family? If you're coming out to check this out, especially if you checked it out for the first time. Yeah. Okay. We're easy access, just a couple minutes off the 403. Uh, It's free parking. Uh, I urge everyone to buy your tickets online. It speeds the process up. And uh, it's not a big walk. We have people mover wagons to pick people up and bring them to the to the uh, gatehouse. And uh, then just enjoy. Take your time. There's much to offer. And I understand uh, HSR is offering a shuttle as well. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm sorry I don't have those details at my fingertips, but the shuttle's available. Uh, from Meadowlands and downtown HSR shuttle, and uh, you can check out the schedule and such uh, on the website. So it, so it certainly looks like you're going to have a uh, great turnout for the 172nd edition of uh, the Ancaster Fair. And if people want to find out more, is there a website we can go to? Yeah, that's right. You can go to the ancasterfair.ca, and you can find out everything you want. Uh, All right. There- another very interesting thing is we have our new agricultural event center, and it's a state-of-the-art center for agricultural displays um on sunday we have our heavy horse show and it's an all-breed show on top of that we have the ontario force four horse hitch classic series and we have the north american six horse hitch classic series on sunday and it'll be something to see and you know like agriculture i mean obviously that is the backbone of all of these fairs and uh great to see that that is still being represented and of course the demo derby midway all the stuff that you normally see ancaster fair taking place this weekend paul gibbons with us president of the ancaster agricultural society check out their website for all of the details and they recommend you get your tickets online to speed it all up paul good luck this year thank you scott We'll get ready, because Walmart and Target in the U.S. are trying to get ahead of the Christmas season by putting out their holiday stuff early. And that's to help consumers with inflation. And, uh, you know, sure, why not? You can spread it out. It's like a 30-year mortgage, right? Uh, and, and then, obviously, in supply chain issues. What's that going to be like this year? Let's bring in David Soberman, Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and with us now. David, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. So talk to us a little bit about this strategy, David. We're going to see it a bit earlier now. Uh, What's the reasoning, and, and how does this help out? Well, it's hard to say that it's earlier because I think every year it's been, we yeah. sort of see these exceptions and we see things. Um, well before what we would think is the Christmas uh, shopping season. But um, obviously, I think with the pressure that people are feeling right now with 
inflation going somewhat crazy, and also couple that with supply chain issues, there seems to be an argument for getting ahead of the game and getting some of your Christmas shopping done ahead of time. Is Does every year, no matter, you know, I mean, obviously this is an anomaly with a, a global pandemic that's taken us through two and a half years, but let's try to forget about that and, and, and erase that out of the graph. Does every year it literally start uh, a couple of days earlier or, co- or is there is there a set time and, and people sort of stick to that? Well, I'm not sure. I think you always see some exceptions where um, companies do things in September. But for the most part, there's sort of been a tradition now of people putting things up in October, um, which is well in advance of what the season typically was. The season typically started after U.S. Thanksgiving. So it it does happen a lot earlier, but this has sort of been the trend now for at least 10 years. Um, do you lose out on the season previously? Like, for example, we're talking about seeing Christmas stuff now, and we're not even into October yet, and Halloween is the last day of October. So um, are, are you cutting into your Halloween sales by trying to start, or even, you know, fall sales by trying to start Christmas too early? I mean, I think there might be that in certain types of stores that focus mainly perhaps on costumes, party items, Mm. and confectionery items. But we have to remember that for the Christmas and holiday shopping season, the range of things that people buy is much broader. And so a lot of stores, for them, Halloween is not really such a big deal, but, but Christmas would be. I mean, I used to work in the confectionery industry, So Halloween was almost as big as Mm. uh, the Christmas holidays for us. But that's not true in many categories. You can think, I mean, it's not really a gifting holiday. So almost any category, you will see a spike in sales in the uh, December season. What about fall and fall fashion industry and, and retail in general? Does the, do the two cross paths or it's fall? We got to buy new stuff. Uh, The weather's getting colder. It doesn't affect the other. Well, I think, you know, the fall season, the winter season, all of these things are sort of melding together now. And it seems like a lot more of our retailing is really based on events as opposed to seasons. So back to school is obviously a very big event in late August and early September, but we're already past uh, that time now. So Mm. we're now for sure, depending on the store, into the Halloween season. But as I mentioned before, Christmas is coming up, and that's because that's the biggest shopping period in the year. A number of uh, retailers try to get ahead of the game and get people to think about that ahead of time. We also have Thanksgiving, which, I mean, it's a a fairly important holiday in Canada, but it's a much bigger holiday in the U.S. Mm. And then you're into the winter season. So, I mean, I think it it seems like a lot more uh, is focused on these events versus the seasons, which perhaps was more the tradition 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, Obviously, during the pandemic, supply chain issues, we've heard of that through the whole thing. How will this year compare to last, and do you see improvement there? Um, Yes, I do, actually. There were recent numbers just released yesterday suggesting that there has been a little bit of a slowdown in the actual retail spending in Canada in the last uh, month. So I think that there was a lot of pent-up demand that created a lot of problems for the supply chains. 
And on top of that, we had sort of spiraling, spiraling inflation and very high energy costs. Now, while we're still um, seeing um, significant inflation and, and much higher energy costs than we saw, I mean, the prices are no longer $2 a gallon. It's more like $1.50 a gallon. And we're also seeing um, a somewhat reduced inflation rate. So when you couple that, with the fact that, you know, people are now getting back to normal, whatever normal is, but they're getting back to normal. I would guess that while there may be some things that are out of stock and some shortages, I think we're getting closer to more of an equilibrium situation that won't be like we saw last year. You talked about uh, the report yesterday out uh, retail sales down, I think it was 2.5%. How concerned are you about that? Is is that strictly tied to inflation and just people feeling the pinch now? I think it's a combination of inflation, but also the fact that I think we saw uh, perhaps abnormal growth in the few months after a lot of the right. COVID restrictions were released. So people might have been waiting. You know, there's a lot of things that people can order online, but there's a lot of things that people like to feel and touch before they actually buy. And once stores opened up, people stopped wearing masks and there were a lot less restrictions. I think that contributed to some significant growth in the retail sector. But what's happening now is it's sort of coming back to normal. I mean, these people that were waiting to buy things, they bought things. And so now we're sort of going more to a normal situation where people do buy on a regular basis, but it's often when things wear out or when they want something new versus I've been waiting to get something and I've been waiting until the restrictions were actually lifted. That's a kind of a a different buying context. And we were in that for two or three months, probably starting... June, May, June, July of this year. Well, we and we heard and we saw FedEx report on this that um, obviously online down as people got to go out and go back into the store. Where in and, and, and prior to the pandemic, we saw uh, retail declining a little bit. And, and as you mentioned, for certain items, they go in and they touch and squeeze and such. But online picking up um, now that the pandemic hopefully is behind us. And like you said, whatever the new normal is, where do you see the balance there between online and retail? In well, I think there's a, a long-term trend towards online. So retailers are going to continue to feel the pinch and pressure from um, the online retailers who have the benefit of being able to buy in larger volumes because they can distribute more broadly. And on top of that, you know, there's still not quite the level of traffics in uh, commercial centers and shopping centers that we saw pre-pandemic. So I wouldn't say that life is suddenly going to become rosy for traditional retailers, but it's probably better, certainly, than it was during the pandemic. And I think think there remain uh, categories that people still like to buy in person, whether it's, you know, their food shopping, whether it's certain types of clothing. And of course, there's all the services that we like to get in person as well. So I think it's sort of a mixed bag. David Silberman with us, Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, talking about this coming Christmas season. And yes, expect it to start early. Uh, early. David, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
No problem, and thank you very much. All right, you've no doubt heard that uh, Hurricane Fiona is heading for uh, the Maritimes after uh, going through Puerto Rico, Bermuda, and such. And uh, we're, we're hearing words such as historic to describe this as uh, it is uh, heading there and, and supposed to hit sometime uh, early tomorrow morning, late tonight. Ross Lord is with us, Global National Atlantic correspondent. Ross, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Always great to talk to you. It, uh, you know, it is a nerve-wracking time. Um, we're here in Port Hawkesbury, uh, which is just the start of Cape Breton as you leave the mainland after you cross the Cancer Causeway. And they're pretty tough here, eh? When it comes to bad weather, hmm. it takes a lot to, to shake them. And, um, you know, no one wants to admit they're afraid, but people are afraid. You know, I've heard a lot of, and I'm sure you have over the years, words to describe storms. I don't think I've heard historic. No. And, you know, you, you hear historic, you hear landmark, you hear, you know, one of the worst storms ever in Canada. And, you know, I have to admit myself going through Twitter um, all week on this, uh, trying to reconcile some of the, the swings or the variance in forecasting and looking at those extreme uh, sort of projections and thinking, well, what, what's going on here? So, our benchmarks, like our reference points, are Hurricane Juan in 2003, devastating hurricane, uh, came in as a Category 2. And uh, another more recent one, um, Dorian in 2019, which didn't do as much damage, but uh, in terms of power outages, it was actually worse than Juan. So what, what the Hurricane Center is saying, in terms of the storm size, like the mass itself, it's bigger than Juan. Um it's uh, about the same size as Dorian, but stronger than Dorian. So, um, you know, uh, sustained uh, winds, maybe not what Juan had, but, but like they're talking like wind gusts of 170 kilometers an hour mm. um, and sustained, uh, I guess it depends on where you are, but 80 kilometers an hour more. If you're sustained at 80 and gusting to 170, for instance, and then it'll vary by the time it gets here, like that's you know, very damaging. And we, we've covered a lot of these. Um, and contrary to popular opinion, I have no interest in hyping anything. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I hope we yeah. can look back and laugh at this thing. Uh, but, you know, from from what the, uh, the meteorologists are saying, you know, uh, it's hard not to be afraid. And from what we hear, also the issue with this, and again, by the time it hits, I understand it will go down as it hits land. They obviously do become tropical storms, but this is going to hang around for a long time, dumping a ton of rain. Yeah, it's going to slow down. It's merging with this other system, um, which will make it, uh, you know, even even more rain, uh, even larger, um, and it will slow down. And, uh, you know, the meteorologists... I'm looking at terms like millibars and, and, uh, and, and I've asked Anthony Farnell, our meteorologist, who's mm-hmm. actually in Cape Breton as well. And Anthony, what is this MB thing? Millibar? Yeah. Yeah. Millibar. Well, what does that mean? Well, yeah. low millibar is really bad. And, and the millibars on this are really low. And so that's one of these, you know, I guess scientific terms that is really frightening meteorologists. What it means in lay terms, according to Anthony, is that that's the, intensity of the energy and the intensity of the storm. So you can't just say, oh, it's not a hurricane, it's a post-tropical storm. Um, you know, our, our, our tendency is to think, yeah, that doesn't sound nearly as menacing. Right, it probably right. won't be. 
and and it, you have, kind of have to think twice about it because yeah. when when you put all these other factors together, people like Anthony and, and other you know meteorologists who I respect um, are saying no, this is going to be like large, extremely intense. And, you know, some people are saying, some meteorologists are saying it could have the impact of a Category 2. So, I mean, if it's an impact of a Category 2, it's going to be big trouble. Uh, everybody prepared? I mean, obviously, like you said, you guys have been through this so many times, it seems you've got a system now down. Uh, are you prepared? And what about shortages of certain things? Any any experience of that at, at this point? Um, well, where we are, we, we made the rounds today, and we talked to quite a few people about it, and you know, like I said, a lot of people stocking up, right, with the, with the usual essentials, yeah. the, the canned goods, the water, the batteries, the, uh, the generators, if you can find one. Um, there were a couple left at Canadian Tire. I was surprised. But, um, you know, the, the province issued an emergency alert telling people to avoid the coastline and rivers. The people we talked to do seem to be getting the message, you know. Um, we talked to a, a homeowner who says they're, they're hunkered down. They've moved everything that could be blown away in the garage they've got food cooked ahead for for the next uh, 72 hours but she's looking out at this old elm tree and thinking like i can't control what happens to the tree mm-hmm. down. i can't control where it goes and if it goes in her direction it's on top of her house and uh so she's extremely nervous about that you know dorian happened uh three years ago and some of the houses on her street lost power for five days and there were all kinds of older uh, all kinds of trees that, that came down. Um, uh, power utilities and, and emergency planners have been preparing all week, right? That's the good thing about these things. Yeah. Everyone knows days in advance. It's coming. Um, and for a while, we were conditioned to the, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then, oh, it didn't amount to much. Yeah, you got to be and prepared. That, Ross Lord with this. Not to take it more seriously. It meant yeah. something you know, like this, and, and but to my small um, glimpse of things, Scott, um, the people I speak with are prepared. Ross Lord with us, Global National Atlantic correspondent. Ross, good luck with this one. Hopefully, we'll chat out on the other side, and uh, it'll be good news. Uh, batten down the hatches. We're thinking of you. All right, thanks, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we know that, uh, obviously, Hurricane Fiona on its way to uh, the Maritime Provinces after uh, skipping through, uh, <laughs> skipping through, plowing through uh, Puerto Rico and, uh, and Bermuda and such, and it looks Looks like it is going to hit the East Coast uh, late Friday night, early Saturday morning. Joining us now, Allison Clements, proud Nova Scotian and former broadcaster and with us now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's just a nice, blustery day here on the East Coast, but thank you for checking in. Well, so where exactly are you? Okay, so I live in Hubbard's, which is about 40 minutes west of Halifax. Uh, so central Nova Scotia on the South Shore. Um, so right now, you know, we really have had this cold streak that has come in lately. But last night you could feel the tropical wind and air push up through from Fiona. And it just it was like a change. It rose six degrees here and it was just very, very windy last night. So a lot of storm prep bringing in everything off the docks. 
um, a friendly reminder to everyone to stay off shore because that storm surge is coming up. So uh, we're getting ready to kind of hunker down and, and have a storm. Are you? You're right in the path, aren't you, Allison? I am. Mm, I mean, we're all kind of in the path. Nova Scotia yeah. is only so big. Uh, so it looks like the, the center of the storm is going to plow through Cape Breton. Uh, yeah. So we are about two hours east, if you will, from there. Um, so the western part of Nova Scotia, Halifax, we're going to get high winds. I was just looking at my Environment Canada app. We are in a hurricane warning. We have a wind warning. We have a storm surge warning, rainfall, all the warnings. Um, so, But if you look at Cape Breton, they have a couple of more warnings on top of that. So winds here where I am are about going to top out at about 120 kilometers an hour in Cape Breton where the storm is going to hit and then keep plowing through to Cape Bre- or to uh, Newfoundland sorry uh, that's about 150 kilometers an hour wind top out so uh, it's very reminiscent right now there's a lot of talk about Hurricane Juan which was back in September of 03 because you know East Coasters we love to talk about storms mm. that were um, <laughs> and that caused a lot of destruction as well and so uh, what you know it's Sorry, go ahead. So what's so what's your plan, Allison? How do you expect to to be this weekend? How do you hunker down? Well, uh, I'm not having a traditional hunkering down. My best friend is getting married up home, and uh, she's going to have a hurricane wedding. So that is what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but traditionally, when, you don't so so hang on a sec, Alice. So when the yeah. wedding's like Saturday tomorrow? Yeah, I was I was actually just up there this morning. We set up. It was supposed to be an outdoor wedding, as you can imagine. It is not anymore. Uh, so we moved into the Mount Uniac Fire Hall, and we set up all the sunflowers and hay barrels inside. Um, so it's taking place tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m. So we will be kind of when the eye of the hurricane is going to go by. Again, we're on the outskirts of it. Um, still going to be in that wind tunnel. So we are going to lose power. It happens every time there's a storm here. A big storm, I should say. Um, but we're going to be in a fire hall and they have to have power. So it's, uh, <laughs> oh man. So if we have to open an emergency center for people around. That is technically the emergency center for Mount Uniac. Uh, so, you know, it's just going to be a good rural Nova Scotian hangout, I guess. I, I'm not sure. But traditionally, that is not how you hunker down for a storm. Traditionally, you make sure you have your supplies for 72 hours, which we mostly all do. You have gas in your cars because a lot of gas stations are already sold out of gas, at least in our region. Um, You have food, a manual can opener, lots of water, filling the bathtub with water so you can flush your toilet. Um, And you just make Hmm. sure you got, of course, your storm chip, your storm beer, and and you just hope for the best and prep your property, of course. I can't believe, and I mean, way to go. There's your East Coaster right there. I mean, you're going to continue on with this wedding in a fire hall. And you know what, Allison? You could maybe even have uh, a lot more people attending this wedding than what you think if all of a sudden it becomes a drop-in center for the emergency. Honestly, that's exactly... We were getting our nails done this morning up there, and uh, the girl said, well, I might need to drop in and charge my phone. Is that okay? And we said, absolutely. Absolutely, it's okay. Just come on by. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you get the stereotypical East Coast jokes like, oh, yeah, they're so friendly. But seriously, we all look out for each other. And absolutely, there's going to be people there tomorrow that weren't necessarily invited. But, hey, we're going to have food. We're going to have power. And uh, we did try to talk the bride out of it, in all fairness. But she is 
she is determined, and by golly, the bride gets what she wants. Wow, that is a great story. Now, you talked about uh, gas shortages and such. Where you are, are the the uh, store shelves, uh, uh, are they getting drained? What's it like as far as supplies? Obviously, you're prepared. We went out. Uh, we went out last night to get our groceries and stock up. And people joke about the storm chips, but I kid you not, the chip aisle was barren <laughs> yesterday. Um, the liquor store—they always have a good supply, but the, the selection might have been a bit smaller. Um, right. So it, people were very much out. Costco was very deep in their line. The Sobies out here is very deep in their lineups as well. Uh, the gas stations went out. Uh, we go to one particular gas station out here. They they were out. They had the pylons up, no gas. So we were able to get it last night, but I thought on my way home today, maybe I should fill up. And I had to go to three different gas stations before I could find gas. So it is, it's starting. And you know it's bad when the Tim Hortons are already kind of preemptively closing and are going to reevaluate tomorrow. Uh, so... It's, it's not that we haven't been through a storm like this before. We absolutely have. You know, Hurricane Juan took out power uh, in half the province for 10 days when it ripped through here and left a path of destruction and some deaths as well. So it, it's no laughing matter. We know it's serious, but at the same time, you can't live on the East Coast and not be prepared for something like this. So everyone has really taken this to heart, and they have got their supplies, and people are still out there getting it. it it's busy on the roads today, uh, but they're just trying to get everything done because tomorrow most people won't be on the road. And life goes on on the East Coast, uh, wedding or no wedding. Allison Clements with us, proud Nova Scotian. Allison, I think we're going to call you on Monday to see how this all went. Yeah, I'll try to catch the bouquet for you. <laughs> that would be great. Good luck and our best <laughs> to the bride and groom and all of you uh-huh. for getting through this. We're thinking of you. Lots going on politically. Pierre Polyev uh, in the House with the Prime Minister again, uh, well, for the first time, and the Prime Minister back in the House. And also, it, it appears the NDP is picking up some momentum. Is this from their dental care plan, or is this just people looking for an alternative? Let's bring in Peter Greb, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Hope you're well, too. So for the longest time, um, you know, once the NDP and the uh, Liberals joined forces with their agreement, uh, Jugmeet Singh kind of Jugmeet Singh sort of became a sitting duck. Uh, it was almost uh, fruitless for him to come out and speak about health care when everybody's yelling at him. Well, you're carrying the keys. You're the one that can make change here. And and he, he sort of looked like a lost dog for the longest time. Now, all of a sudden, pressuring the government to push through the dental program. Uh, and we're starting to see an up take in the NDP numbers as the liberal numbers come down. Is this uh, about the the new dental plan? Is this what's giving him or the NDP uh, a a bit of a surge? Or is it people are just looking for alternatives? Well, I think in some ways it's Pierre Polievre. I mean, he's been running so much on this idea that, uh, you know, ordinary working Canadians are getting squeezed. And I think really he's primed an issue which, you know, to date is, uh, you know, when people feel that way, in many cases they're like, well, which party might we think is going to, you know, stand up for us? And I think in that moment, at the moment, I think he's really driving people towards the NDP, particularly when you can have someone like Jagmeet Singh stand up and say, yeah, we're pushing the liberals to improve the GST tax credit and bring in this dental care and move forward on, you know, pharmacare, those are things where, you know, Canadians who are feeling squeezed are thinking, yeah, well, actually, if I didn't have to pay that dental bill, 
suddenly uh, things would look a bit better. So I think, you know, from that point of view, uh, yeah, part of it is Canadians looking for an alternative. Uh, it seems like Jagmeet Singh has something in the window to deal with uh, the, the crisis and the cost of living. And I think Pierre Poilievre is really priming a lot of the Canadian uh, electorate to look that way. So it's kind of an unintended consequence, I think, of, of, of the campaign uh, Poilievre has run. Why are they choosing NDP over the Liberals? Well, I mean, ultimately, uh, I think they look at those parties and, uh, you know, for a lot in politics, it's kind of long term uh, issue ownership. So when, you know, the, the NDP uh, really hammers on around health care, in many cases, that drives votes to the liberals. Uh, but I think when it's kind of cost of living issues, particularly sort of pocketbooks of, uh, you know, ordinary working people, it's the NDP has that kind of credibility. And so people say, OK, that's that's a party we're going to support. I mean, I think it also helps that the Liberals have been there for seven years. So there's you yeah. know, people when they're unhappy with their financial situation uh, are always going to blame the government in power. And so, uh, you know, I think part of that, too, is uh, the Liberals are paying the price for having been there for seven years and uh, Canadians blaming them for the hardships that they're facing at the moment. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has been quite vocal about health care. He has spoke up a couple of times and, gwen- and been quite firm uh, with the Prime Minister that, you know, he's got to get together with the provinces. We've got to try to find solutions for this, whatever it is. Um, but does that doesn't seem to be resonating uh, with the Prime Minister, but dental care does. How, how come or, or why do you think he has the influence over the dental care plan, but not so much on getting everybody together and trying to find a solution for health care? Well, I guess uh, the first issue is that dental care is a lot cheaper than the, uh, you know, many billions more being asked for by the provinces on health care. So I think that's, you know, one piece of the solution. You know, number two, uh, I think Trudeau looks at, you know, Ontario and he looks at Quebec and in both, you know, in this Quebec election at the moment, all the parties are promising to cut taxes. Uh, you know, in Ontario, uh, you know, Ford's different revenue measures mean that Ontario is earning you know, uh, many billions less than it was if they hadn't made those changes. And so when the provinces say, hey, we're poor, the federal government give us more money, I think Trudeau says uh, or thinks that, well, he's going to put money there, not get a lot of credit. And at the end of the day, the provinces, you know, have been making decisions uh, to do things other than health care with their, with their budgets. So for him, if he puts the money into uh, dental care, he can nevertheless go to Canadians and say, here's something new that I've I've developed for you. And again, the fact that it's going to cost uh, billions less and those health transfers is probably also uh, music to his ears. What does Jugmeet Singh have to do to make an impact in this uh, in this next election? How, how much work does he have to do? What are the challenges? Uh, well, I mean, I think a big challenge is, uh, you know, ultimately he's the fourth party in the legislature at the moment. Um, and so, you know, it's hard for him, it will be hard for him, I think, to claim things like uh, this dental care program or a pharmacare program because Trudeau uh, can say, well, he was a government that brought it in. Mm. So I think uh, getting uh, getting the, the credit is hard. I mean, in these minority situations, the smallest you don't parties think... that, that support the government pay the price for the unhappiness mm. with the government that's there. I mean, people say, oh, look, Jagmeet Singh supporting the, this government that's not doing anything about X or Y. But the things they like, they probably give credit to the government. So for a minority party like that, the biggest challenge, I think, is to is to be able to claim some credit while avoiding some of the blame. Don't you think Jagmeet Singh will get credit for dental if it goes through? I think he's aided by the fact that Trudeau's been there seven years and it'll be more like 10 by the time we get to that election and Canadians are sick of him. <laughs> so are probably mm. less likely to give him credit than if this had happened, say, four years ago. 
but you know it's hard i mean up to a few uh, a few weeks ago as you're pointing out jagmeet singh had really you know fallen out of the way and was getting much more of the kind of criticism about what's this guy wasn't he's fighting for us rather than any kind of credit for these programs and you know in another two and a half years and Canadians may have forgotten about these programs and moved on to other things. And so, again, it will be hard, I think, for Jagmeet Singh to stand out as either things that he can claim he accomplished. When do you think we're going to see another election, Peter? Well, I, I may be naive, but I think we've got another two years until we get there. At really? Least, I... I mean, we're, we're one year in, so it's going to go at least another two years. It wouldn't be impossible that it goes to four Um I guess a lot of that will depend on, you know, Trudeau uh, figuring out when he thinks he maybe has a chance of winning. But at the moment, you know, it's it's hard to see a moment where the Liberals are in such a commanding position that uh, he thinks it's time to go. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we're going to see uh, a few years yet before uh, before we get to that election. What about Jagmeet Singh? He has the power to bring them down. Uh, is there a sweet spot for him here? Uh, well, not a really obvious one. I mean... You know, ultimately, uh, there are a bunch of Canadians who really want an election to get rid of Trudeau. Uh, but they're the same people who wanted that election 14 months ago and they got their election and it didn't work out for them. Right. He's the Trudeau's still there. And so I suspect for. Uh, well, I think it was last election, Peter. I think uh, it was the prime minister that wanted the election, not everybody else. Uh, yeah, although I think the people who say we want to get rid of Trudeau are happy to have an election every, any day of the week. <laughs> any, I, I, any week I would agree year. with that, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I don't think they've changed. I, I think a lot of Canadians aren't saying, well, we need an election right away. And particularly mm-hmm. in Jagmeet Singh's base, I think they want to see these programs get developed so that they're actually in existence before we go to another campaign. So I think in terms of the people who support Jagmeet Singh, there's not uh, a lot of... Uh, not a lot of desire to go quickly into an election. That may change if the federal liberals begin doing things that are really upsetting to uh, his party's base. But, you know, in the, in the medium term, I think they'd be happy to see this uh, government go along, especially when the alternative at the moment is most likely uh, a conservative uh, federal government. Yeah, Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, politics of the day and where we stand. As always, Peter, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have been talking about this um, for longer than I care to remember, and I couldn't come up with a fast enough quip. But an Ipsos poll says Canadians are becoming more and more supportive of the gas and oil sector in Canada due to the energy crisis and the situation with Russia and Ukraine. I have no idea why a country like Canada that supplies, that, that, that provides less than two percent of greenhouse gases uh is worried about taxing the hell out of us so we can bring that down to what one percent will that save the planet as opposed and while we're doing that buying our oil and gas from dirty players like iran wherever uh instead of having those jobs here so just so we can say oh look we got bragging rights here we're down to one percent as opposed to taking our cleaner energy and helping those countries who are dealing with 30 percent 20 percent of that uh, of those numbers and getting them off coal 
But we don't seem to be going there because we're more interested in looking good in our nice socks than we are in really helping the rest of the world, including Germany. Uh, and we saw where their dependence on renewables went. Not saying we don't need it. We got to keep plowing ahead. We got to move away from fossil fuels. But I'm telling you, this Canadian government is nuts when they think of their plan to do it while the rest of the world freezes. Hopefully things are changing. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former liberal MP with us now. Your thought on on this, Dan, uh, are we seeing a changing of the tide here? And I don't think it's the first time I've asked you that. Uh, yeah. No, I think you're seeing a massive shift in the public uh, perception. Um, one, they're engaged uh, on the issue of the importance of pipelines, especially when it comes to getting uh, our product to market versus pretty much every other country you can imagine on the face of this planet. I think also Canadians are a little perturbed by the idea that uh, we do import a lot of oil from unsavory countries. Uh, yes, we do import a lot from the United States. We export a lot to the United States, but the potential is far greater. And of course, now people look at inflation. They're looking at the fact that we are heading to a recession, like it or not. Uh, when the likes of David Dodge, former governor of the Bank of Canada, says that the, you know his his uh, uh, those who have preceded him uh, have been very wise in how they've uh, managed the economy. When you look at the cost of energy moving up, and you know that uh, there is. Uh, a likelihood of uh, of greater inflationary pressure, which would be met with, you know, talk about, you know, using, uh, pouring gasoline on a fire. Uh, when you use higher interest rates to combat something that uh, energy prices uh, have caused, much of that due to the fact Canada refuses to get its product to market, you now, I think, see a lot more Canadians getting involved, uh, whether it's Canadians who are now having to visit food banks, whether it's higher unemployment numbers, which are coming, or whether it's uh, simply those out there that realize something has gone terribly wrong with this country. And you can't blame this on global offense. You can't blame this on COVID because that's exactly what this government's doing. Yeah. This country has the third largest provable reserves in the world. We have the, we are the fourth largest exporter of energy. We could be number one with a bullet and with much cleaner creds to do it. We choose not to do it. And I think the public has pretty much had enough of politicians like uh, Premier Legault and like Justin Trudeau who've gone about their way finding cute, trendy, sneaky ways to stop building pipelines that every other country has no difficulty doing. And, you know, we really have to stop being so selfish because we're saying our hands are clean while we're buying dirty stuff under the table or behind closed doors, or and by that I mean the Canadians public largely not aware of it. And if we really want to help save the planet, rather than, you know, that big 2% that we're emitting – why are we not focusing on getting the world off coal? Like, there's a couple of stages that have to be done here. Isn't the first thing we should be doing is getting the world off coal instead of shutting down the Canadian uh, industry, uh, energy industry, which is supplying the cleaner energy? Well, yeah. Why would we not consider going to 2% from 1.4%, 1.6% in order to save the world 30 to 40%. Exactly! Why are we not having that discussion, Dan? why. Because you have a Prime Minister and a Liberal Party, which I called a cult, that in 2016 at the Paris Climate Accord said, even if Canada had all the natural gas in the world, which it does, supply the world for 250 years, if no other country did it, we would get no credits under the terms of the Paris Climate Treaty. So that's the kind of stuff that yeah, well, we want the climate. We've signed a really stupid agreement. And, this, and the agreement isn't just punitive to Canada. You're seeing that, by the way, today with uh, the weakness in the Canadian dollar. And that, of course, is going to be even higher pressure on inflation here in Canada, which we met with even higher interest rates. Go figure, vicious circle. 
But here we have a, go- a government that signed an agreement that gives us no credit for the great things that we could do, even though we are doing them quite well. Thank you. So well done, uh, voters in Hamilton. Well done, voters here in Toronto, here voters here in Oakville. I mean, look, uh, I don't know how, how people have to bash their head against the wall to realize the damage. There is a choice, and people had better start to think about that choice because they can't afford the status quo under the liberal NDP woke governments. How did Germany get caught with its pants down when in the last 10, 20, 30 years they were on the cutting edge of renewable energy? That's where the wind turbine energy, uh, ideas came from. I mean, how did they get caught here? What can we learn? Well, they didn't change. All they did was spend a lot of money towards pretending that they changed at the same time uh, continue to rely on Russia to do the dirty work, to do the coal, to do the oil, to do the mm-hmm. natural gas. Uh, and pretend that it wasn't going to be them. It's, by the way, the same thing is going to happen with the Canadian government. Let me give you uh, something I've never explained to people, but it's part of a study I'm working on right now, and I will make it public soon, but there's a snippet. You have the Canadian government going out saying, we're going to reduce uh, carbon emissions by imposing a second carbon tax, the clean fuel standard. That is going to mean a 1.3% decline in our economic output. So we will get emission reductions, and we will get a lot of that done with uh, adding more ethanol, much of that made in the United States with generation done by coal. So it, it looks good for Germany to have gone the way it did because it can, you know, it can export or it can offload its dirty, uh, you know, its dirty slate to another country. Canada will do the same thing with the United States when it comes to ethanol and that clean fuel standard. But at the end of the day, like Britain, uh, like Germany, Canada will see a net loss in its economic uh, activity I estimate, uh, and the experts I think will back me up, is about 1.5% between now and one and 2030. So that means even if we go into a recession, we're not, our ability to get out of it is going to be that much more difficult. We've, mm-hmm. Following the German lead is uh, almost a, a surefire way to uh, lead yourself over the cliff, a financial one and uh, another one uh, dealing, obviously, with, uh, with climate, because uh, you're not going to achieve it. You might achieve it in Canada, but you're, you're again, exporting your dirty work to another country, yeah. which is what Canada's about to do. Exactly. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. New Ipsos poll says Canadians are becoming more supportive of our energy sector due to the energy crisis going on around the world. Thank you, Dan. Have a great weekend. Pleasure, pleasure being here. Thanks again, Scott. Have a great weekend. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, it's been a while since Canada had a uh, Canadian ambassador to China, and a new ambassador has been chosen. Her name is Jennifer May, the first female ambassador to China. To talk more about all of this, John Gretzner is with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and is with us now. John, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Uh, my pleasure, and thank you for having me to your show. It's been quite a while, John, since we've had one. How significant is it now that we have a Canadian ambassador to China? Uh, well, I think it's a, a part of uh, a normalization of a, uh, obviously an important relationship for not just Canada, but for the rest of the world and, and for the Chinese people to have somebody there uh, and accepted by the Chinese as a sign that both sides want to to uh, re-engage on ideally new terms. How does China feel about this? Why, in my view of when we say the word China, I mean, I think we have to be more specific in the way we look at any country. Um, The Chinese foreign policy, um, people, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, obviously, uh, having agreed to it, are are condoning it. Um, 
China is, uh, I think, we is a danger when, and it's an Orwellian danger when we put countries in specific terms and don't look at the complexity, uh, both positive and negative, any country, including our own. Uh, so I, I don't think one can say that China looks at this, but I think the foreign policy people in China obviously welcome this as a, a step forward. How much does China or the Chinese Communist Party have uh, influence over who is chosen? I don't think they have any influence, ideally, in any country over who's chosen. They obviously have the right to refuse mm-hmm. an appointment, but that would be extremely um, difficult, I think, for any country. And uh, my background is not diplomatic, it's commercial, but I think most countries would have a hard time uh, refusing on any ground. Someone of Jennifer May's background has obviously been posted there and has a fairly exemplary career within the Global Affairs Canada. So I don't think that it's right to say that the Chinese Communist Party or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has any influence on who we chose. Uh, This being Jennifer May being the first female to this post, is that significant? How significant is it? I think it's significant within Global Affairs Canada's structure, the the diversity and ideally um, equality of appointment opportunities for for people of all backgrounds. So on the Canadian side, it's obviously a a step forward. From the Chinese perspective, I think coming into a country that is looking at its own uh, path over the last 40 years of economic prosperity since Deng Xiaoping started this in 1992 or even 1979. Originally under Chairman Mao, the expression was women hold up half the sky. And to a certain extent, that's been subjugated uh, in some respects, but not all over the last 20 or 30 years. And there is a nascent, um, what we call the hashtag Me Too movement in China. So I think that uh, this type of symbol can be important to that. Uh, The British uh, just finished with a uh, female, I think she's come home. British have had a female ambassador. Other countries have had a female ambassador. So I don't think it's ground shattering from the Chinese perspective, but I think it is a a point that gives us a certain sensitivity at a time when that issue is probably important to uh, the issue of gender parity is important to certain uh, messages that we would like to communicate to the general public in China. We certainly know the tensions have been high between China and Canada, especially in regard to the two Michaels and in situations in the past. What's the big, the biggest challenge for Jennifer May moving forward? I think the challenge for uh, Canada is to recognize and, and for Jennifer May to coordinate that recognition that the relationship is complex. We have um, a, a large component of our economy is sourced uh, in China, uh, $53 billion. We have a large export commitment and, and relationship with China on one side of the equation. Obviously, there are issues under the current leadership of Xi Jinping, and I would say that we probably have more issues with the current leadership position than the actual country um, mm-hmm. that have to be balanced in terms of what our expectations are. And in, in a larger sense, um, we have to mature our relationship both on the the dexterity and the acumen of the engagement and be more sophisticated. And I think she's, that's her first challenge. Her second challenge, in, in my view, is to, to learn what we have learned with the United States since World War II, um, a pushback on American exceptionalism 
has been part of Canada's foreign policy at critical points, um, including the Vietnam War, the Second War in, in Iraq under Chrétien. We have to learn with the same sense of discipline uh, to push back on certain aspects of, of Chinese exceptionalism under the current leadership. How concerned are you with China's relationship with Russia, considering the Russian invasion of Ukraine? You mentioned that uh, obviously our economies with China are are, are much more uh, interwound and such than than it is with Russia. Uh, how concerned are you about these two teaming up? I think it is um, not just for Canada, but for um, a number of reasons. It's a very disconcerting uh, partnership. That partnership. Uh, when you start looking at it under the microscope uh, at a recent security conference in Kazakhstan uh, privately, I think uh, President Xi did raise some questions to the Putin administration along with uh, Prime Minister Modi about the merits of war in a modern economy. And obviously it distracts from the real issues that we're facing globally, which are monetary policy um, impact that started in 2008. Uh, climate change, biodiversity, um, and and uh, obviously in potential of inflation and and the fragility of the global economy. So it's unfortunate that um, two large countries have, have come together, and um, Putin by his actions and Xi by his uh, his tacit support for Putin have, have suggested that war is still a viable construct, and that's disconcerting. John Grusner with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute. A new ambassador has been chosen uh, for China, Jennifer May, and here's hoping uh, that can smooth over some relationship issues that we've been having in the past. John, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, and you have a good weekend. With this global pandemic that uh, hopefully we're now uh, is behind us and we're learning to live with it or whatever you want to call it, um, it has certainly focused on our healthcare system and how much it needs our attention. Uh, healthcare workers burnt out and, and, and trying to get some uh, relief as, as they move forward. And as well, when you see the issues that uh, healthcare is going through, you have to ask yourself if you're a young person, is this the sort of industry you want to get into? On the other hand, it has really encouraged a lot to get into this industry and universities are listening and stepping up the programs, admitting more students. And in this case, a new simulation lab at Brock University is going to help the future generation of nurses uh, get prepared for real life. Let's bring in Karen Tapley, Associate Professor, Department Chair, Nursing, Brock University, and with us now. Karen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. You know, this is, you know, there seems like there's a simulation for everything, whether you're driving, whether you're flying, whether you're this, that, or the other. But now we have simulation when we're teaching healthcare. How does this work? So, simulation in healthcare goes back about 20 years. Um, but in the last 10 to 15, it's become more popular. And within that time, it's advanced exponentially. So, a basic simulator uh, is a mannequin. And that mannequin, um, depending on the level of fidelity, can breathe, have a heart rate, um, have a pulse. Some of them you can program to speak and respond to certain commands. Uh, and we even have a simulator that gives birth. Oh, my. Oh, so man. It's pretty fascinating. Holy smokes. That's incredible. Um, yeah. 
how, uh, how I was going to ask you, how do they work? Uh, you don't necessarily have to go to the birth one first, but so uh, if you're a student and, and obviously this is a mannequin type simulator, what can you program it to do? How does this aid and help the student? So two questions. How, how do we program it? It's, you know, it's software based. It's considered kind of like robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, we would, we would put a program in certain vital signs. So we'd say, you know, perhaps this person's coming in with an asthma attack and they would have an increased respiratory rate. Um, they could show signs of being cyanotic in their, their fingertips or around their lips could look kind of blue. Um, they could have crackles or wheezes in their lung sounds. And that allows the students all the, all the opportunities to come in and assess the patient just like they would a human. So you create a scenario and they have to figure it out. Exactly. Exactly. And we can create, you know, scenarios. We do create scenarios from birth until the end of life. That is incredible. How realistic is this? I mean, obviously it's a simulator, um, but how has this advanced what you're teaching? How is this, how realistic is it and how has it advanced what we're teaching? So there is, I mean, it's a mannequin. um, So they do look real. Uh, we have a new mannequin who's a senior a geriatric mannequin, and she has like sagging skin. She's got age spots. She's got pronounced veins on her hands. So we try to really increase the realism that way. The other thing we do is we set up the lab so it mirrors um, a hospital unit. So it has hmm. oxygen. It has suction. It has an IV pole. It has the monitors there. Um, we can do a cardiac monitor. We can put somebody on a ventilator. Um so we can mimic just about any situation that the students would experience. And the other thing that we can do is we can mimic situations that the students may not experience. So, for example, we can do everyday occurrences, assessments, vital signs, um, planning of care, you know, working interventions. But then we can also do like low frequency, high acuity events like we could uh, simulate a code blue, for example, yeah. um, where somebody's having a heart attack and the students need to start compressions right away on that person. That was my next question. And maybe this sounds naive and morbid, but Karen, can they, can they die? Can they pass away? Is that part of the, 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 the program? Is that part of the teaching? It is absolutely part of the teaching because, you know, we're, we, we nurse across the lifespan and mm. death is part of that. But not every student is going to experience that in clinical. Um, and so what we do in, at Brock specifically, we have a palliative care simulation. And we, we do this so it's an end-of-life simulation. They come in, um, assess somebody in the community, talk to the daughter. They know that the person's palliative, but the, the student comes in and finds a person and they've passed. And then they have to work through that scenario and figure out, the appropriate people to call and who to get help for. And Hmm. then we have another scenario that's acute. Somebody dies in the hospital. um, And then the students are asked to talk about organ, um, organ donation. Wow. Holy smoke. So, uh, and, and, you know, obviously healthcare, you're trying to keep the person alive, but I can imagine uh, what it must be like emotionally to go through losing a patient. And this would go a, a long way in, in helping teach someone how to cope with that experience. It does. And you know what, when we're, when we're having the simulations, the palliative care simulations, 
they are so realistic that it does evoke a lot of emotional response in our students. Hmm. Um, some of them can get upset. Some of them can get a little quiet. They can get a little weepy. Uh, and that's okay. That response is welcome in the lab and encouraged because we can help them work through that and, and to learn some coping strategies. And it helps them when, they're, when and if they're in that situation with a real person. So uh, how much, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, you want uh, the nursing, any nursing student into a real situation. How much of this um, um, uh, enables you to spend less less time actually at a patient's uh, bedside? Although I'm sure that's a big part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, clinical placements now are a challenge everywhere, not just in the Niagara region, but everywhere. Um, so getting our students to get the number of hours that we would like for them to get in clinical can be a challenge at times. And that is, you know, a direct result of nursing shortage, nursing burnout, uh, and competition for sites from the schools. So we get our students absolutely as much in clinical experience as we can get, and we highly value that with our clinical partners. But the simulations augment, kind of add to their learning and it can help fill gaps. So uh, what is it like as far as enrollment? Are you seeing more interest in this, uh, in, in, in this industry as we come out of a pandemic? What is it, what is, are, are we getting enough nurses out into uh, the industry? What's, what's it like as far as people being interested in this profession, profession? Because I'm guessing there's an opportunity here. There is an opportunity, and, and Brock is really responding to that call. Um, so we typically, our program, we took about 80 students for enrollment uh, every year, and we were considered a small program. Uh, in 2001, we upped our numbers to take in 180 students, uh, and then this year we've upped it again to take in 228 students. Mm, wow. um, and that's combined with a new program that we started. A, it's called a BN to MN program. Uh, and we took an additional 23 students in that program. It's the first in the country, that program. Uh, and it allows people with a previous degree and prerequisites um, to come in and get both a bachelor's and a master's in nursing in under two years. So Brock okay. is really responding to that call of there's not enough nurses we need to get more nurses in in the system of education so that we can, in time, get them out into the workforce. Uh, there, Karen is Tap a, there is a demand. Karen Tapley with us, Associate Professor, Department Chair, Nursing, Brock University. Uh, lots of people interested in this now. And if you're thinking about it, they have a new simulation lab at Brock University. Karen, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Thank you very much. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. And you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing spectacularly well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. you got to feel for the people in uh, on the East Coast, uh, the Maritimes, uh, New Brunswick specifically. Uh, <laughs> they're right in the path of Hurricane Fiona as it's whipping up the eastern uh, seaboard. And I mean, these guys obviously used to uh, this sort of weather, whether it's 10 feet of snow or, or, or hurricanes or such, although they're calling this one historic, which, you know, I don't want to hype this. And then it, you know, turns out to be a, a heavy breeze. Um, but, but certainly that is a word 
word that uh, we haven't heard before. And it was fascinating. I was talking to uh, a resident of uh, a suburb just outside of Halifax, and um, they're probably about 20, 30K outside of Halifax. And they were saying that uh, there is a wedding that's going on in their uh, immediate group, and it is going on as scheduled on Saturday in the fire hall because that will be the only place that has power. That is resilience, my friend. All, every time I hear that, all I hear is... Look, not laughing about it because, I mean, no. there's a couple things that you just said. First of all, if it if it hits, and mm-hmm. how many times, not to like dump on our good friend Jay McQueen, who does weather no. here on 900 CHML, no. but how many times him and every other weather person in the last number of years, massive snowfall coming, and we gear up and we stock up on supplies and plan to not do anything, and then it's like, wait a second, there's a half a centimeter of snow. So let's hope that in this case, that's what happened. This thing veers off. And nobody in the Maritimes gets hit with this because, you know, I, I was just out there. I, I haven't done a lot of traveling to the East Coast. I was just out mm-hmm. there in June for the Memorial Cup when the Bulldogs were playing out in St. Yeah. John. And you know what? It is a beautiful part yeah. of the world. And the people yeah. out there are spectacular. And But it's also, a, you know, as you walk around that city, it's a very hilly town. And you realize all yeah. those places, especially on the top of hills, are really i mean if they were to really get hit there's a lot of places that are really exposed Hmm. and you're thinking to yourself like i i don't know that all those places are built for hurricanes yeah well (laughs) i mean who is uh, right but i mean yeah yeah nonetheless it's it's you just you hope that somehow and, and probably they don't get hit dead on i mean when was when was the last time that a canadian province we've we've had remnants yeah well, when was the last time a Canadian province got absolutely, like, truly hammered by a part of a hurricane? I don't know. I guess what they're really concerned about with this one, and they, you know, they're hoping by the time it hits land, it, it's it's a tropical storm. But what they're worried about is just the size of it, and the and it takes like twelve hours to go over. So right. it just you just keep getting hammered and hammered and hammered, and then obviously flooding entails. So well, you know, I mean, and it's, that's, it's, that's another thing because again, yeah. I, not St. John was a new city to me, and it's a great city. But mm. downtown, they have this huge construction project right now going on in the yeah. downtown part. And it's right on the river that comes in, right where the port is. Yeah. And you realize, I mean, as you're describing this, you realize that, uh, you know, you get a foot of flood rising or whatever else. Yeah, um, yeah. There, Surge, you yeah. Could have You could have problems. That, that area could, again, I don't think it's designed for that kind of thing. And so... You know, you hope. We just hope and pray that it doesn't go there. Did you get screeched in? Did you kiss the cod? I did not. I know, is that a St. John thing? Is that a New Brunswick thing? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of St. John's. Yeah, I'm getting yeah, St. No, John's. No. I'm getting my Newfoundland mixed up with my New Brunswick. No, so so here's your question. Which which to you would be more acceptable as a as a tradition? Would you rather go east and kiss the cod and get screeched in or go to Alaska and have to drink that toe cocktail? <laughs> Uh, oh, oh, I've been screeched in, so I know that. So I'd rather go with what I know. Rather, than, I thought you were going to compare east to west because I've had that discussion with people. You know, what do you like the east coast? And well, I like the west. Like you can't compare the east coast to the west coast. Like you can't compare any part of Canada because everywhere you go, it's different. So yeah. I mean, you know, what you're going to see in the east and what you're going to see in the west is is night and day. However, I will echo what you say, and you really don't get this until you go there. But the people are 
over-the-top friendly. It is Amazing. very, very friendly town, that's for sure. Uh, and I'll give area. you an example. I'll give you an example. So for the Memorial Cup, they had this unbelievably great volunteer shuttle service for all the people who were mm-hmm. there, either with the media or teams or whatever. And you would simply call this number and people would come and pick you up. And, you know, around here, I could see something like that happening for a big great cup or something. And someone would say, I want to go to the Lime Ridge Mall. And you're like, yeah, okay, it's not really close, but okay. I mean, fine. I've, I've got to hurry up. <laughs> Here, the guy goes, I asked a question about something about um, uh, Bay of Fundy, which, you know, I didn't even know, but it's like an hour away. And he's like, hey, you want to go? I'll take you. No problem. I'll stay for the day with you. We'll do it. That is like, something. That's just unique. It's just It was just unique. <laughs> and I, I didn't end up doing it because I don't want to take the whole guy's day. But nonetheless, it was sort of typical of the attitude that you got there. It's like, whatever I can do for you. I'm in. Let me make sure your trip here is good. All of Canada should visit the East Coast and Absolutely. hopefully pick up on some Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. All right, Scott Radley coming up next, hosting the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have yourself a great weekend, Scott. You too, Scott. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 5.57, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Diane and Dave in the newsroom and Tom and Liz for producing. Have yourself a great weekend and please play safe.